What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to 101. I am so thrilled that you're here for this particular episode. This is a very special one, close to my heart. I definitely wanted to get my guest on, and it took a little while, but we finally made it work, and here it is. So we're just going to get right into the sponsor, and then I'll be right back to let you know who I'm talking about. Sponsor in three, two, one. Boom, just like that, it is over. Thank you so much for listening to that. Now, who is my guest today? My guest is the one and only Ron Miscavige. Who, who is Ron Miscavige? If you don't know, he is the father of David Miscavige. And David Miscavige is the leader currently of Scientology. Um, Scientology is a very, very uh, divisive kind of topic, um, but most people realize what it is, which is a cult. It's a, it's a glorified cult. And Ron was a member of Scientology for over 40 years. He actually got his family into it, and uh, he escaped from the church back in 2012. He has been incredibly outspoken about his views on Scientology. He's even appeared on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. And uh, we cover similar things that you may or may not have heard if you've listened to that podcast or various other interview like that he has given, various other interviews. Um, but we also cover, I think, some stuff that you may have never heard about. And I wanted to make a point to do that. So without further ado, because I, I could talk and talk and talk, but I think it's best to let the episode do the talking for itself. So sit back, relax, get ready, get set. It's Ron Miscavige. And we are back. And on the other end of the line is a guest that I've been really looking forward to getting here on the podcast. His name is Ron Miscavige. And uh, first and foremost, you can check him out at therealronmiscavige.com. All the information is going to be in the show notes. So if you want to click the link, feel free to do so. Um, but without further ado, Ron, how are you doing today? Not bad. Not bad considered I'm a prisoner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, with the coronavirus, you you got to obey the rules because uh, they're they're for your own good, and I I think it's a good idea because uh, I think we're going to be out of this maybe sooner than uh, we thought we were. But you know, that's that's an optimistic view, and I hope I'm right. Anyway, but other than that, uh, I'm keeping busy here. You are anyway. Uh, good good talking to you, Eddie. Likewise, yes, it's uh it's it's a real honor to have you here on the podcast, and um um. When I initially pitched it to you, I, I, I told you that I had found you through um, Joe Rogan's podcast. Right. And um, first and foremost, I just want to ask you, because I am such a giant fan of him, and then we're going to get into your story and, and all the stuff that, um, that I think is uh, really fascinating. But what, what, what was it like to be on Joe Rogan's podcast? Was that sort of a, because you, you gained a lot of popularity after that episode. Yeah, that's true. Um... <clears throat> well, it was pretty good. It, it, it's just a strange way that it happens because I I went into his studio, which is in um, California in the Hollywood, I guess it's the Hollywood area, and um, sat at a table 
And he walked in the room and said, okay, good morning, Ron. We're on the air. That was it. He didn't say another word to me. <laughs> and he didn't say, you know, how you doing or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I just, you mean we're on the air already? He says, that's right. He says, a lot of times, a lot of good stuff goes on the floor. So I just start the thing as soon as I walk in. And that's how it started. So that was uh, a bit unusual, but, you know, it's no big deal. And then he read a statement that the Church of Scientology sent him, which uh, I think freaked him out a little bit, not majorly on the show. But after the show, he walked out of the room and he says, that's the last goddamn time I'm going to interview a Scientologist. And I, it, it had to do with the, what they sent him, which was a disclaimer that everything I was going to say was a lie. And I, I, I don't even remember what it was now, but that's their standard operating basis. They, they try to intimidate people into shutting their mouth, which absolutely doesn't work with me. Uh, it's never worked with me. And um, we got into the show and I thought it was pretty good. There, there was a point where I thought he was a little bit unfair because he was trying to say that I the only reason I wrote the book was to make money, which couldn't be further from the truth. Because, Eddie, when I got out, uh, I had people dunning me to write a book about my experiences because they knew I had inside information. And I said, listen, I, I don't want to do that. I want to keep my anonymity. All I want to do is get on with my life. And you know, the, the couple incidents happened that propelled me into writing that book. And it wasn't to make money. It was to expose the darker side of the Church of Scientology. So, okay, for everyone listening, um, um, do you want to give a uh, as brief of a synopsis as possible? Because obviously the story is incredibly long. You were a Scientologist for 42 years, if I'm not mistaken. That's exactly right, yeah. And uh, you, um, you escaped, as you put it, uh, which, is a, which is a fair statement, uh, uh, on March 25th, 2012. So it's, it's actually what? It, it, it just passed the eight-year mark you've been out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And uh, I'll tell you, um, what happened that got me to write the book? Well, first of all, you want to hear about the escape or what? What, what do you want to go into right now? Uh, I, I yeah. For so for everyone listening, just uh, just so that they like kind of have like a like an understanding of of where you're coming from, because I think it's a it's a wicked story. Well, okay. Here here's here's the thing. First of all. You mentioned I was in Scientology for 42 years, which is correct. But more importantly, I was on staff in what's called the C organization for 26 and a half years. And that was the end of my association with Scientology after being exposed to uh, that type of life. It really is. And as I look at the. Uh, you know, different forms of government and stuff. It's actually like living in a communistic uh, environment because you share common birthing areas. Uh, you eat together as a group. Everybody gets paid the same. Uh, your hours are all the same. And uh, I, I never aspired to live in, in a communistic group. I'm really a a type of person who believes a person makes their own way in life and how hard you work or maybe how hard you or how smart you are will determine how you get rewarded for what you do. But at any rate, I was in, as they say, as you said, for 42 years, 
But then in 1985, I joined the Sea Organization. And uh, that was quite an adventure because to start with, to start with, it was really a lot of fun. And I, <laughs> I know that's hard to believe me, these words coming out of my mouth. But when I got in, being as I'm a musician, I was assigned to the music department. And the first thing I did was to do an album with Edgar Winter on uh, music that L. Ron Hubbard proposed to match up with his 10-volume set, Mission Earth. Now, that was hard work. We worked our butt off in the studio. and uh, But I will tell you, it was just so much fun and wor work with a great musician like Edgar. I, are, are you familiar with that name, or is that before your time? Uh, I would, yeah, that's before my time. Okay, he was a rock star in the 70s. He wrote a song called Frankenstein. That, that may ring a bell where it starts off, Anyway, it was a big hit in its time, and <clears throat> he had a band, and uh, they were a big hit for a long time. And he had a brother who also uh, was a musician. And um, I just got a beep on my phone. That's not you, is it? No, that's not me. Okay. All right. So that's what I did. I worked in the studio. We worked very long hours, uh, tough work, but very rewarding. And it just, it was a pleasurable experience. That's how it started. That then gradiently, little by little, went downhill to the point where I couldn't tolerate living that life. And when I say I couldn't tolerate that living that life, here's what I mean. When you lived in a sea organization, you were living on a, a compound. There was barbed wire around the entire area where you lived, pointing out and pointing in with razor spikes. You couldn't go to a store on your own. You had to buy everything on the internet, which had a filter on it, uh, so that you didn't see any bad stuff about Scientology. Um, your, your mail, any mail that you got was censored. In other words, it was all read before you, it came to you. And if there was something in there that you shouldn't read, you weren't given it. Any letter that you wrote out had to be approved by the security guards. So you put it in an envelope, put a stamp on the envelope, left it open. They'd read it. If there was anything that had to be changed, they'd send it back to you. And once you wrote the correct thing, then they would let it go and it would be sent out. If you wanted to call somebody on the telephone, you couldn't do that. You would call people, but there was somebody on another line listening to what you're saying. This is the type of life that I started to live. And uh, as I say, it didn't happen all in one fell swoop, but gradiently as time went by. As, as an example, I'll, I'll tell you. What happened on the telephone calls was this. Tom Cruise was on the base at the time of, of this story, I'm telling you. And there was a guy on the base that used to call his mother and tell her all the things that Tom Cruise did. She would sell it to these like National Enquirer and rags like that and make money on it. He was caught doing that. So what's the solution? 
stop everybody from calling out. Uh, that's, you know, uh, it's one thing to do to, to try to improve that. But if you're going to do something like that, well, why not filter out the people who are prone to do it and say, OK, listen, if you're going to call out, we don't want you giving private information like that. No, everybody was stopped. So now you had to go through an operator and they'd say, who are you calling? Why are you calling? Wow. That led me to plan an escape in the. Well, I guess you could say it started in 2011 because <clears throat> my life went downhill over the years. And uh, like the last 12 years, we didn't receive one day off of what's called liberty. Now, we would get time off at Christmas uh, or maybe L. Ron Hubbard's birthday, maybe a day off or have a nice dinner or watch a movie. But like a regular day off, you're supposed to get a day off every two weeks. Twelve years went by and I never got one of those Liberty Days. So. I used to say to my wife, I says, Becky, listen, honey. We've got to get the hell out of here. This is getting worse. It's going to get worse and worse. And she's the eternal optimist. And she would say, listen, I know it's going to get better. I know it's going to get better. So I acceded to her because I have a wonderful woman that I'm married to. And finally, one day it came and I said, Becky, we're getting the hell out of here. She says, okay. So then we started planning our escape. Now, what tipped me over the edge completely was this. By the way, did you know I'm, I'm a musician or no? Yes, I did. Yep. Okay. Because, uh, I mean, I've done that my whole life. I'm 84 years old. I started playing professionally when I was 13 years old. Uh, this is back in a little coal mining town in Pennsylvania. And I used to play at a club called the AMVETS, which is short for American Veterans. And uh, I'm 13 years old, a piano player. Listen to this phenomenon. This is a little bit of inside skinny here. <clears throat> My birthday is January 19, 1936. The piano player's birthday, Stash Galitsky, was January 25th, 1936. The drummer, Bobby Dinklocker, who was from a town about 15 miles away from where we lived, his birthday was January 31st, 1936. Jeez. And, uh, with three of us within six days of each other's birthday happened to get together. The sax player, uh, his name was Dicker Paul. Why he would pick an, a nickname like Dicker, I don't know, but <laughs> that was his choice. He, he enjoyed that. He didn't want to be called Dick. He wanted to be called Dicker. So now he, has, he used to drive us because he was 16 years old and he could drive a car. We used to play a five-hour gig. We got two bucks an hour, so that was $10. But on Monday, you could go to J.C. Penney's and buy a pair of jeans for a buck and a half. So I was flushed. And the other point is this. At that young age, we played five hours without one piece of sheet music in front of us. We knew all of the standards of the day. So that's how I got started. And as I grew up, I was in and out of it. But I, I kept my hand in it because, you know, I had four kids. I had to do something to make money. I just couldn't go on the road for the pleasure and say, oh, well, we'll make the right. I, I wanted to raise my family properly, which I, I thought I did. And I provided for them well. But uh, 
along the way, when I was in England in uh, 1974, I got an album deal with Polydor Records. And I got a writer's contract with Chapel's Publishing Company for my music. So, uh, as a matter of fact, that album is on my website, therealronmiscavige.com. And uh, if anybody wanted to listen to the tunes, you can sample them or you could buy them. You know, I think they're like 99 cents or something. That's the album I did. Now, I was the only one in the music department who had that kind of record or credentials. Let's put it that way. Nobody else in there had a record deal. Everybody else was, you know, musicians, but nobody had that. There come a point in my life where we got a new music manager. And this guy was like Torquemada. Are you familiar with that name? Uh, what was it? Torquemada. No. Okay, he ran the Spanish Inquisition. You know about that, right? Yes. Okay. This guy was a real bastard, I'll be honest with you. And once he got in a position of power, he wanted to lord it over me. And I used to write music all day long day after day, week after week, month after month, and everything I wrote got disapproved that it wasn't worthy of his standard of music. And by the way, this guy was about 20 some years old, never had a job where he got paid to write music, but he had it over me. So along with the other things about, about the being imprisoned, and not being able to write to anybody freely or communicate freely. That was a thing where I finally said to my wife, Becky, I said, listen, there's no way I'm going to live this way. We're getting the hell out of here. So then we started planning our escape. Now, what's interesting to me about this entire story is the fact that you're the father of David Miscavige, who is the leader of Scientology. And he, when did he become the leader of Scientology? Well, I'll tell you how it worked out, uh, and we'll get back to this if you want to hear how it just ended up. Yeah. Um, he got in Scientology. As a matter of fact, his asthmatic condition, which he was born with, was really part and parcel to us getting in Scientology as a family. Because I'll tell you, he when he was born, he has a twin sister, Denise. And... Uh, he had asthma as a little child. And I don't know if you've ever seen a baby or a little kid go into an asthmatic attack and turn blue and they can't catch their breath and you think they're going to die. But it's, it's heartrending. I'll be honest with you. Hang on. I just wanted to get a sip of water there. You're good. Um, so my experience with him as a baby and as a, a young child was basically always trying to figure out ways where I could help him get over his asthmatic attacks because his brother and his two sisters were all healthy. Nobody had anything like this. I mean, there were nights when he'd have an asthmatic attack and I'd sit next to him by his bed and hold his hand and I'd be afraid he was going to die. So we, we finally got in Scientology and the way we got in Scientology was almost on a fluke. 
Uh, I got in a business called Holiday Magic, was was a one of these uh, multi-level marketing schemes. You know what I'm talking about? Like the the Ponzi scheme. Well, it wouldn't be. Well, I, I guess it's like a Ponzi scheme, but it's not a Ponzi scheme. Okay. In other words, you you get in and you buy product at a certain level, and if you get other people to come and buy product at your level, you can move up to another level, and you make the difference between what they pay and what you would pay. So you're, you're making a profit on people. But in theory, that's not what works. In fact, it doesn't work because people end up with garage full of products they don't know how to sell. And this product was makeup. It was called Holiday Magic. Anyway, I got involved in it because I had a friend of mine, um, who said to me one day, hey, Ron, how would you like to make an extra $100,000 this year? And this is back in the 60s. And I said, yeah, what the hell? Why not? You know, so he introduced me to uh, to Holiday Magic and I did get involved in it. I, I thought maybe we could make it work. They used to have what's called opportunity meetings where you get a whole room full of people, maybe in a motel room or a hotel room and you have a blackboard and you show how this scheme works. And a lot of people would get excited about it and buy into it. So I was at a holiday, uh, excuse me, at a, an opportunity meeting. And I was talking to a person and standing next to me was a girl talking to another guy. So he happened to say to her, well, I'm a Scientologist. I heard the word and I stopped talking to the guy I was talking to, excuse me, I says, hey, what is that? Well. The guy's name was Mike Hess, by the way. I pinned him down and I made him talk to me about Scientology for about 30 minutes straight. For some reason, the name had like a magic bell in my head that went off. Make a long story short, I did get involved in it. And I used to go to uh, a meeting that this guy, Frank Ogle, uh, Frank Ogle had a cafeteria down in South Jersey in Woodbury, New Jersey. And I think on Tuesday or Wednesday nights, he had a meeting where you would go there and they would talk about Scientology and you'd practice different of the uh, precepts of it. The main thing we talked about in those days was communication. So after about a month, I figured I, I, I got what they're talking about. I, I, my communication is improved. I'm happy and I, I stopped going. Meanwhile, back at the ranch with David, he was still having these asthmatic attacks. And one day I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. Scientology said they could do certain things. I'm going to, I'm going to take David to see Frank Ogle and get him some auditing. Now, if your listeners don't know what that is, auditing would be another word for counseling. In other words, sitting down and speaking to a person. But the way it's done in Scientology is by exact laid out rules how you would do this counseling and i'll be honest with you of any of the things the basic stuff that you get in scientology has a lot of truth in it and and that's how the the hook goes in your mouth and you're hooked getting back to this i took him down to see frank ogle i called him i told him i was coming down and i said frank can you help david he says well let's go let's see so he took david in for an auditing session or a counseling session. 
45 minutes later, David come out and I said, Dave, how's it going? He says, dad, I'm, I'm handled. He never had a severe asthmatic attack as a child after that session. Now he had asthmatic attacks, but very mild, never had another uh, severe one. That sold me. I thought I got to get my whole family involved. There's something special about this. So then I took my whole family down to, uh, I think these days it's called a mission. And those, those days used to be able to, a franchise, which is a lower level of uh, administering uh, Scientology counseling and training. So I took everybody there and everybody got started in Scientology. Now, coming forward on that, we're talking about David getting to the top, right? Correct. You know, yes. We get back to the escape. I just want to make sure yep. I'm not losing the, our train where we're going from. <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> okay. So now we end up going to England for two separate times. We I went there. We, we I took my whole family there in 1972, went till 73, excuse me. And then um, between 74 and 75, it was a total of two and a half years. And that was the time I mentioned earlier where I got the recording deal and stuff. Anyway, we come back to the States and now David is in high school. And I come home from work one night and I walk down the hall and I see him laying in his room with his laying on his back and his hands behind his head. And I say, hey, Dave, what's up, man? He looked like he was pondering something. He says, Dad, I, I, I don't want to go to school anymore. I says, how come? He said, listen, the kids don't listen to the teachers. They all take drugs. He says, I don't want to live this life. I want to do Scientology. I want to help L. Ron Hubbard. And I thought to myself, well, should I let him do it? And I thought back when I was a young man and I got out of high school and I joined the Marines. I was 17 years old. And I remember I had to get my dad to sign for me to join. And I really wanted to do that. And I remember him saying, Ronnie, are you sure you want to do this? The Marines are the first ones in. They're a dangerous goddamn outfit. As you had that, I really want to do this. So he's okay. So he signed for me. Now I joined the Marines. And I can tell you this. Did you ever see Full Metal Jacket? Of course. I love that movie. You see that opening scene where they're in boot camp? With Arlie Army? Yeah. Okay, that is exactly how boot camp starts. You're standing there in your underwear, and everybody gets punched in the stomach or their head smashed against the rack in back of them. It is a living fucking nightmare. And I can remember when I was experiencing this, my first night, and I thought, this is the worst mistake I've ever made in my life. Now, sometime later, about 10 or 12 weeks later, I'm at the end of boot camp. I'm graduating. And I can remember saying to myself, I can make myself do anything. They turned me from an undisciplined civilian into a disciplined Marine. And that has kept me in good stead my whole life. Because being able to be focused on a chore or something that you want to accomplish probably is one of the greatest attributes you could attain. And I got it from the Marine Corps. So 
when David said to me, you know, I want to help L. Ron Hubbard, I thought those thoughts flashed through my mind. I said, well, it looked like I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I didn't when I joined the Marines, but I've benefited from my whole life. And if he's determined to help L. Ron Hubbard, and I feel that it's a helpful thing for everybody, I'm going to let him do it. So I said, okay, Dave, I'll help you out in whatever way. On his 16th birthday, uh, I gave him some money. I bought him some clothes, bought him a plane ticket, and I put him on a flight to Clearwater, Florida. And on that day, he went down and joined the Sea Organization. Now, he, within seven or eight months, was working right with L. Ron Hubbard. And he had uh, a toughness about him that, well, first of all, you're going to hear all the bad shit about Dave, which all of it is true. He did all these things that people say about him. But underneath that, he is quite a brilliant guy. I mean, even as a little kid, I remember he was a real spark. He had a good sense of humor, even with this asthmatic condition he had. Just smart beyond his age. And just I enjoyed living with him. But it is true, though, with the acquisition of power that he gained from being in the Sea Organization, that power corrupted him. And I don't know if you ever heard this expression. Power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Did you ever hear that? Uh, that's the first time, but that's a, that's a great saying. It is. And it was Lord Acton who said that he was a, a, a British member of parliament. He lived from about 1834 till the early 1900s. And, and that's what he said. He said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. So now David's in a sea organization and he's moving along and he has some powerful posts where he controlled quite a few people, gained a lot of friends, but he made some enemies too. Now he eventually got in a post where he was the person between L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology, the world of Scientology. Because there came to a point where L. Ron Hubbard had a, you know, escaped from being within the clutches of the law because they were after him. So he would write and all of his communications went through David. Now, think about this now. He's controlling the communication coming from L. Ron Hubbard and the communication going into L. Ron Hubbard. That's a lot of power. Can you see that? Yeah, that's yeah, that, that, that's that's an insane amount of power. <laughs> exactly. Now he's a young man. Now, when L. Ron Hubbard died, what he did was started moving up, taking people off of posts who oppose him, and putting his own people in who supported him, and he eventually got to the top, and he. He was not appointed to be the head of Scientology. He just took it on. Now, there's a little backstory on this, too, which I'll tell you, and that's this. While being in the Sea Org, prior to L. Ron Hubbard dying, he did have a severe asthmatic attack where he had to go to the hospital, to the emergency room. And they fixed him up. You know, they have very advanced methods of handling asthma. Uh, that you can't, it's not something you do at home, but they do it in an emergency room. 
Anyway, when the guy went to pick him up, his name was Paul Grady. Paul Grady said he picked up David and David said, Paul, he said, I had an amazing realization. And Paul said, what's that? He says, it's this. Power is not granted. It is assumed. So what he did was he assumed the leadership of Scientology and worked his way right to the top. And that's how we took over the church. Wow. So in theory, there could technically be a, a different leader had someone else potentially stepped up. It was just exactly, exactly was, right. He was the most powerful guy of anybody there. And he removed people who opposed him just by sheer uh, determination and charismatic power. I mean, the, the guy's a powerful individual. There's no two ways about it. There's no way you could end up running. And in those days, in the 90s, there was probably 100,000 Scientologists. That was the peak of uh, the, the amount of people in. There's no way you can get to that point without being a powerful individual. You might be conniving. You might be, uh, you know, use Machiavellian type techniques, underhanded stuff to get there. But you're a powerful dude. And that, that's how he got to be the leader of the church. And then what happened is uh, that corrupted him. He went from, uh, what's the word now? Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde, I guess. Yeah. Be the best way to put it. I'm sure you know that story, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's what happened to him because, like one of the one of the first signs of this that I saw when I was when I first got into Sea Organization, by the way, which I was posted or stationed at a place in Hemet, California, and it's called Golden Era Productions. I'm sure you've heard of this, but that that's where I was posted my entire 26 and a half years in the Sea Org. I, rem- I ma- mentioned to you that I was working with uh, Edgar Winter, and I remember coming out of the studio just for a little break in record in recording. And I'm outside this, the studio, and to my left, oh, about 30 yards away, is David and his entourage. And this is I'm brand new. This is within the first month of being there. And I yelled out, "Hey, Dave!" And he turned around and looked at me. And it was a look that was, hey, I'm not your father here. I'm the leader of the church, and you work here. And that was the status I had while I was there. I mean, people would say, oh, well, you were his own man. You had a lot of perks. Well, let me tell you this. On my birthdays, he would have a meal sent down from a a restaurant in L.A., and I'd have a great meal there and give me nice gifts and Little, little things like that, but on a day-to-day basis, it was, I had to be better than everybody else because I was a miscavige. So it wasn't easier. It was a little harder for me. Ron, how come, because, okay, so so hearing this and obviously, uh, you know, hearing your other appearances on, you know, Joe Rogan or just any interview that you've given, it's just, it sounds like it's a 100% horror story although i know that at the beginning like you said there there were very positive elements to it but it just descended into a horror film why why doesn't and i don't know if you know the answer to this but i just want to see if you do why doesn't david miscavige give interviews about what's going on because 
today, like you said, I can't imagine there's that many people joining Scientology. It, like it's probably seeing a real steep decline. How come he doesn't give interviews to kind of get rid of that cloud that's 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 really just hovering right over the word Scientology? Well, because that cloud is true. What are you going to do? Come on and say, no, it's not true. The stories you hear are true. So for him to come on and expose himself to having to say something about it, I mean, there'd be enough people who would call in or enough proof of people being, you know, beaten and living certain ways that you, you wouldn't. I mean, some of the some of the stuff that people were made to do to work in a, a like a sewage pond where all the sewage of the base went without protective gear on just as punishment because you did something wrong. You're subjecting these people to disease and, in other words, bare hands and your bare feet walking in this shit. I mean, it's just, I wouldn't do it to another human being. And yet stuff like this was done. And what are you going to come on and say, okay, yeah, well, that's the way it was. Actually, truthfully, if you did that, I think there'd be some hope for uh, getting out of the mess you're in. Because right now, Unless you live under a rock, you're not going to join Scientology. Anybody who has access to the Internet knows that they're not okay. They're, ba they're bad people. And that's true. And I, I feel by their own actions, they've now trimmed themselves down to maybe 20,000 people worldwide. And these are the dyed-in-the-wool hardcore people who have been for like 20 and 30 and 40 years been in Scientology. Listen, once you get your mind in that condition of being a hardcore Scientologist, it's a tough, tough act to get out of it. I, I, I will give myself and my wife credit and the people who have escaped credit for doing something that I consider to be. And by the way, just I'll reference this because I do basically separate shows to handle parts of life. I, I like to contribute to life and our society. And the number one show I do is the interviews I do with people who have been abused by the church so that people can see, you know, how this works, not to get entrapped in it. I do another show called Storytime, which is strictly for entertainment and relaxation, where I read stories out of one of my humorous books that I wrote and that that's called story time. Then I know another one called uh, life lessons. And then the last one I do is something I discovered about a month and a half ago, which is a workout apparatus. And I did it basically because I wanted to come up with something for my fellow veterans that they could afford to get and strengthen themselves in the later part of their life. Because the older you get, it, you, the more reason there is for you to work out, to stay healthy. It helps you all around. But anyway, those are the things I do. And one of my life lessons I called the hardest thing you will ever do. And I am telling you that this thing I mentioned is the hardest thing you will ever do. Do you know what that is? Are you talking about leaving and escaping Scientology? Yeah, no, what, no. Just what would be the hardest thing you can ever do? Um, the hardest thing I, uh, I don't know. What, what is it? I'm going to tell you and you're, 
listeners, if they want to hear more of these life lessons, can go there and listen to them. The hardest thing you will ever do is admit you were wrong. Mm. Yeah, I can see. Yeah. People, after you've been brainwashed and your mind is set up, and I'll, I'll tell you exactly how this is done. You get in a state of mind where your your mind is your prison. And for you to say, I was wrong. I did the wrong thing. Most people cannot do that. They'll say, well, yeah, I was wrong. But the reason I did it, and they'll justify why they did it. That is not admitting you're wrong. That is justifying why you did a certain thing. The way to do this was stand in front of a mirror and say, you know what? I was wrong. And truthfully, I'll tell you, when I got out, I used to still uh, hang on to certain precepts that I thought were good. And finally, a friend of mine from Las Vegas, uh, a drummer and a real good friend of mine when I was in the Sea Organization, he's also left. He, he said to me one day, Ronnie, let's face it, we were conned. And I remember getting off the phone with him and I looked in the mirror. I actually did this. I looked in the mirror and I said, you know what? You were conned, man. Said, yeah, I was. At that point, I started to come out of it. All the layers of what I consider to be true things start peeling off. And it was at that point that I started gaining my freedom. But look, here's how this is done. Now, when I say you were conned, Let's take that word con and expand it out to the word confidence. The early things you do in Scientology, the, the early courses you do, the early uh, counseling you get is all workable. As an example, the first course you'll do, well, I don't know if it's these days, but in the days when I went in, it was, is a communications course. And you actually learn the proper components of communication. And there are certain things that are proper. You learn how to do that. You go out in life and you, you're more confident because you can handle communication a lot better. And you start thinking to yourself, man, this is really good stuff. And then maybe you're going to go in an auditing session and you go over certain things where you're able to talk to somebody freely about various things that may have happened to you i'll tell you that alone if you weren't a scientologist and you had a good friend and you had a real problem and this guy was a good listener and he sat down with him and, and you told him your problems and he acknowledged it many times you'll feel a lot better and get better or, or get over what's been bugging you these are the type of things that you do to begin with in scientology and they are confidence builders. You are confident that what they're telling you is true. So now, a little further down the line, some datum or fact is entered into your conversation or maybe in your studies. And you look at it and you think, you know, that I don't know if I agree with that. But everything they told me so far was true. I'll accept it. And that's it. You're done. Once you do that, and once you start accepting things without measuring it against life as to whether it's true or not, 
then you start believing all these things. And then you start believing that what they're saying is that Scientology can handle life for every man, woman, and child on it and to make it a better planet to live on. You actually begin to believe that in the face of the fact that that's not true. As an example, they say they're going to clear this planet. Clear the planet means that everybody is in a state of mind where uh, they're listening to what L. Ron Hubbard's words are and living their life with these precepts that are considered to be the most valuable ever. Now, they say they're going to clear the planet. They've been saying this since 1950. This is 2020. They haven't cleared a fucking alley yet, okay? Please, this is like the Monty Python show. Yet people will still go on that premise, we're going to clear the planet. I don't know. Does that make sense to you, what I just told you? It does. I mean, it sort of does because, you know, obviously I'm a rational person and and, and, yeah. and hearing this stuff doesn't make sense. And and uh, when you were on Joe Rogan, you were telling him about, uh, like, I remember you telling a story about how they teach you to somehow be able to leave your body and go somewhere else. Well, um, no, that's not. That has never been achieved by anybody. Yeah. And I, I was in Scientology, Scientology for 42 years. Are you familiar with what's called out-of-body experiences? Um, I feel like I've experienced that. Is that like deja vu or no? No, it's not like deja vu. It's that you are, as a spiritual being, out of your body, and you can look at your body from an exterior viewpoint as if you were another thing. Oh, no. And you, you could travel to a different country and read a newspaper there or see people doing things with certainty, just as you can, as you're sitting wherever you are now. And you know that where you are and you know what the reality is. This idea of being able to exteriorize you as a spirit from your body and have full perception at a different location has never been achieved by anybody in Scientology in 42 years. Yeah, I mean, maybe the closest I've gotten to that is like dreaming, you know, as I'm sleeping, I'm dreaming, yeah. but that's about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, that's about it is right. But there are thousands of cases of people. As a matter of fact, my wife's father uh, was a race car driver and he got in an accident and he was on an operating room table and he was pronounced dead because he had his head smashed in. Heart stopped beating. Doctor come out to tell the wife that he died and the kids. And uh, he tells the story. He actually came back to life. And he told the story of what happened in the hallway outside of the room where he was, exactly what his wife said, exactly what the kids said. And he said to the kids, he said, listen, you're a spiritual being. You're not this body. You're something different than it. And I just experienced that. That's the first hand experience or second hand that I've ever heard. And I have a tendency to believe him. I think it actually can be done. I don't think anybody knows exactly how to do it, though. So the, the thing is this. Let's not get into personal belief here. Let's get into statistics and facts. That's what I want to stay to. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so, okay. So that's how David became the, the leader. He kind of just assumed the position and he was like, all right, 
this is it. This is this is now my church. Um, That's right, Eddie. You escaped in 2012, and it's an it, it's an incredible escape. But honestly, I think what's even more incre- like incredible than that is what happens a year and a half later, after you escape from the compound. It's um, you're taking out groceries to your to your car, correct? And oh yeah, well, what happened there? I, I can tell you. Go ahead. This this is uh, this took place in a town. <clears throat> a little south of where I live right now. I live right near Milwaukee, and uh, this is a town near Whitewater. And there's a store down there called Aldi's. I don't know if you have them where you are. It's a grocery store. And it's, uh, anyway, I was in there shopping. It's the summertime. And uh, I was bringing the groceries out to the car, and I had a pocket T-shirt on, and my cell phone was in my left hand, t-shirt pocket so i opened the door and i go i bent over to take the groceries out and i thought my cell phone was going to fall out of the pocket so i grabbed my left chest with my right arm to keep the phone from falling out meanwhile the two private investigators who had been following me are sitting in a car viewing me and the father says it's a father and son team the father says, it looks like our target is having a heart attack. They used to refer to me as the target. And uh, he says, I'm going to call in and see what we should do. So they called their contact, whose name was Greg. He said, hang on, I'm going to get somebody on the phone. Very shortly after that, a person got on the phone and identified himself as David Miscavige. And he said... To the private investigators, listen, if it's his time to die, let him die. Don't intervene. Don't do anything. He hung up and now the PIs. And by the way, if you want to hear the interview where the son tells this, go to my website, therealronmiscavige.com, and you can listen to this police interview. It's right on the air. And uh, the father says, I don't care what happens in the future. If this happens again, you call 9-11. Don't go there because we can get sued, but call 9-11 for help. Anyway, that was David who said that. And uh, that kind of was a game changer for me. Because, okay, so for everyone listening that 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 doesn't have backstory to that, like why you were being followed, you were just being followed because they had found out that you had escaped, obviously. So now, uh, presumably. Well, no, no, here's here's the story. Now, look, I am the father of the chairman of the Board of Scientology. I'm considered to be a high security risk. Yeah. Because, you know, there's a chance I could go to the media or. And, and blow the whistle on a lot of their abuses. Which you have. Which I had, but I had no intention of doing whatever. All I wanted to do when I got out was get on with my life. Change my life where I could play music. I was selling an exercise apparatus. I wanted to sell that. Uh, you know, just enjoy life with my wife and my new freedom. And when this happened, I thought, boy, oh boy. I called David and I, I couldn't get through to him, but I got through to an attorney. You got on the phone and uh, we went around and around. And I said, listen, just knock this shit off. Call these dogs off. 
don't do this to me. And at that point, I decided, well, my daughters had been disconnected from me. Like when I escaped in March 25th in 2012, within two months, my daughters were forbidden to call me or have anything to do with me. So my daughters, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, who I've never met, I've lost them completely. But uh, I had a CD of this interview, and I wanted to go to Florida to play this to my daughters to let them hear, you know, how, how David feels about me and that they should talk to me. <clears throat> well, we're going to Florida, and within about 10 miles of Clearwater, Two private investigators pick us up and are following us. Now, we didn't know how come they knew we were going to Florida until about a month ago. And we found out we had a paid informant on our lines here, a person who befriended my wife, who pretended to be her friend and would milk us for data and give it to the Church of Scientology so they could. And she was being paid to do this. Wow. And oh, yeah. And uh, that we just just about a month ago found out who it was. And uh, that's how come they knew we were coming down. So we went down there and uh, <clears throat> I tried confronting them. They wouldn't stop and talk to me. They'd run away. Um, as a matter of fact, one guy, he followed me to a, a grocery market. And uh I went over to him and he started walking away from me. I said, hey, come here. I want to talk to you. So as I started walking faster, he started walking faster. Finally, he started running. He jumped over a fence to get away from me. So I could never pin him down to say, why are you doing this? You're doing this for money. You're a fucking low life, man. Come on. All I'm trying to do is get on with my life. So we're down there in Florida and I go to my one daughter's house. There's no answer. Went to my other daughter's house and her husband came to the door. And uh, I'm talking to him and talking finally 15, 20 minutes. He's refusing me to let refusing to let me see my daughter. Says you gotta handle it with the church. And I said, Come on. It's a waste of fucking time. I mean, you know, this is this is with communication. I can't handle it with my own daughter. And he says, No, it's not gonna happen. So I said, Well, what does this mean? He says, I'll tell you what it means. Denise and I are through with you and Becky forever. That was the point where I thought, you know what? Fuck you. I'm writing a book. I'm going to expose you sons of bitches. That was the reason I wrote the book. Not for money, but to expose the church and do a public service for a lot of people. And because the disconnection policy is arguably one of the worst um beliefs that yeah. they have yeah. and look at here that's considered to be a handling right okay so let's apply that to life you go to see a doctor um you're talking to him talking to him finally you see he says well what's the problem and he says well i know but i'm not going to talk to you anymore he says get out of here that handles you how in fuck's name is disconnecting from somebody so there's no more communication going to handle any situation. I'll tell you what it does do. It gets people to realize that you're dealing with 
an outfit that shouldn't have a tax exemption, they're no more a religion than penguins are a religion, okay? It's bullshit. This is a business. A business. And a cult. Yeah, but they're dis- they're disguised as a religion. But, and they're operating in life. They're pretending they're a religion so they can get money from people because it's a tax exemption. And those people who have been for in a while, and there are quite a few of them who are very wealthy, who are completely brainwashed. And I'll, I'll tell you, it, intelligence doesn't have that much to do with it. It's your ability to confront the truth that has to do with it. Because there are people, and look, I've met John Travolta and Tom Cruise and Kirstie Alley and people like that. These are these are pretty bright people. They're good actors or bad actors or whatever, but they're not stupid. But they're brainwashed. And they can't confront the fact they've been fucked over. And they're contributing to a lot of people being screwed over. So it's on them that by lending their name to this outfit, they're giving it some credence of respectability, which it doesn't deserve. So it's safe to say that uh, you don't uh, go like go see the the latest Mission Impossible movie. Well, that's pretty safe to say that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I tell you, I tell you, he's I, I met him, you know, quite a few times, and he's a personable guy, but. Uh, his thinking is off. I'm being very gracious when I say that, okay? But that is the truth. Their thinking is off, but it's solidified. And the only thing that can crack that is if you can look at yourself and say, you know what? I was wrong. If you could do that, you could kind of find a little crack in the wall where you could start climbing out of the well you've been living in, thinking that you're you're helping every man, woman, and child on the planet, yet nothing could be further from the truth. If this were to spread to the planet, it would hurt every man, woman, and child on the planet. That's the truth. Yeah, very much so. And um, when I was when I when I finished watching the uh, the episode where you were on Joe Rogan in the comments uh, section that I was scrolling through, I came across a comment that. It made a lot of sense to me, and I didn't know why Joe didn't ask this. And when I, when I initially reached out to you, I was like, I want to ask you some of the stuff that I feel like was totally missing from that incredibly popular interview. Um, yeah. When it comes to, and of course, I don't know if you have any insider information, but I just want to throw it out and see what you have to say. When it comes to your daughter-in-law, Shelly Miscavige. Do you know what's going on with that? Because that is one of the most bizarre stories that I've come across. And I know Leah, Leah Remini, did a whole thing about filing a missing persons case, right? Basically, you have all the information that I have. Now, I may have a little bit more solid data on this because of my friends. I had a friend who also escaped. And uh, he's living in Fiji, I think it is now. And he worked in what's called uh, RTC, Religious Technology Center, which is basically the top organization in Scientology. It's basically David's Gestapo, okay? That's what it is, Okay. if you want to put it bluntly. And they had 
an organization right at the Golden Air Productions. They had buildings where they operated out of. And one of them was very close to where I worked in a music studio. As a matter of fact, I used to take, like, well, one thing, my birthday is January 19th, 1936. Shelley's was January 18th, only one day before mine. So I used to take her birthday present and a birthday card over to the Religious Technology Center building, their communications division, where they would receive communications and send communications out. And I would take her card and her birthday present over to the girl there, and she would send it up to Shelly. And about a day later, I would get an acknowledgement saying, thanks a lot, Ron. And, you know, a nice, nice acknowledgement for giving her a gift. And then in about, I guess, 2004, I took this over and I didn't get an answer for about three or four days. <clears throat> and it was a very, I don't know how to put it, almost like a sing song. Thank you very much, Ron. I do appreciate it. Like somebody else wrote it or a kid wrote it, you know. And I just dismissed it. I didn't think further on it. Now, when I escaped, I called this friend of mine who worked in that communications office. Nori Matsumoro is his name. And I said, by the way, what whatever happened to Shelly? He said, well, I'll tell you whatever happened to her. She was sent to a place called Big Bear. And that's up in Lake Arrowhead area, which is about, a, oh, maybe an hour and a half from where the base is. And there's a compound up there where they're putting away L. Ron Hubbard's lectures and his bulletins on these titanium CDs. And they're put, putting them underground and various, I, I don't know how to describe it, but it, it's like airtight things or something that would protect it from an atomic warfare thing. It, if the world ever came to the point where uh, atomic bombs wiped out the population, whenever life appeared again, you could go there and get L. Ron Hubbard's tech. Just accept what I'm saying. Okay, you don't have to agree with that. Of course, I don't agree with that myself, but I'm telling you, that, that's where that's where Shelley was sent. And I said, well, how do you know this? He says, well, <clears throat> when you you bring a gift over, we put it, you know what a pigeonhole is? No, I don't. What is it? Okay, at the post office, they probably have them where it's little slots in the wall and mail goes into different areas or different towns and you just throw it in there and then you take it out of that and you sort it more completely. But they're called pigeonholes. Okay. They're literally boxes on the wall where you can put things in. He said, when you would bring a gift over, it would go to the pigeonhole that would say to take it to Big Bear. And that's how come I know that she went there. Now, the thing that is bizarre about it is that, um, like, I, like, like I was saying, Leah Remini filed that whole um, missing persons case because she was really close to, to Shelly. And then she noticed that she was never making public appearances ever again. And and that got completely dismissed by by the what is it the LAPD like it was just looked at and then put to the side as if nothing like had ever happened and i think recently 60 minutes did a special about that where they were um like a few years back i think they were trying to f you know figure out the answer like where is shelly miscavige and you know obviously that 
they got no answer for that. And the popular belief is that she's just being held against her will. Ron? Ron? Ron, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Well, I don't know. We dropped out for a while there, but I you, you, I was trying to uh, tell you that the cops are in bed with the Church of Scientology. You're never going to get them to do anything. Listen, when Scientology Celebrity Center has an event in the summer, which they can they convert their parking lot into a huge nightclub. This is literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to do. And they invite all the, like the celeb, well, not all, but the, whoever will come to it from Hollywood to this event. They have the cops come over and do security work. They pay them 50 bucks an hour. You're not going to bite the hand that's feeding you. The cops are corrupt in L.A. Let's, it's Danny Masterson, accused of being uh, of raping these girls, the DA is not doing anything about it, and she never will. You have to have some outside agency come in to handle them, because otherwise you're never going to get justice out of that area. So this is a story that will never really ever see the like the truth. No, not really. I mean, look, and they say, well, Shelley's being held against her will. That may be true. But it also could be true that she feels that she owes it to L. Ron Hubbard to be secure and not hurt the church. So she's there with her own uh, permission. That also could be true, what I just said to you. Gotcha. Yeah, it, it, it just rubs a lot of people the wrong way, especially when I heard that on uh, the Leah Remini episode. I was just like, what? Yeah. Are you kidding me? That's insane. Yeah. I know. In, in this day and age, just imagine. Uh, well, I'll tell you, it's a, a statement about our politicians. I have very little respect for any politician because all they're interested in doing is getting voted into office again so they, be, they can become millionaires. And most of them don't give a shit about their constituents. They'll do what they'll say what people want to hear and. Uh, I, I don't want to get into it. I don't want to make this a political thing, but there's not one politician in all of America who will go and say, hey, wait a minute. This is not a church. This is a goddamn cult. They could easily prove that it's a cult. Easily. Not one of them are willing to do that. So I'll let it go at that because oh, otherwise... Uh, Listen, I'm proud to be an American. I'm a Marine Corps veteran. Uh, I was happy to serve my country. And uh, I think it's the greatest place ever. But we got we, we to gotta get that Constitution to work a little better than it is right now because it is not being applied. And uh, I think it's harming a lot of people. That a, a group like this, a group like the Church of Scientology can be allowed to exist and influence people, break up families, break up friends, break up relationships, people lose jobs, and say, well, it's in the name of religion. 
Yeah, it's very strange. And um, before we uh, wrap this up, because we just did pass the one hour mark, and and I know you wanted to keep this, uh, you know, as tight as possible. If if David were to to completely realize, you know, um, what has happened, and uh, to be able to do what you did, where you look in the mirror and you realize, okay, you were conned, I conned myself. If he were to come back, like to to try to reach out to you into your life, what would you do? Like, do you think it's it's too far gone at this point? No, I don't think anything is ever too far gone. Maybe when you're dead, it's too far gone because then you can't talk to the person. <laughs> but uh, at all, listen, I'm willing to talk to anybody about anything, anytime, anywhere. I'd be willing to talk to them, absolutely. But I can tell you this, if there were any hope, whatever, any hope, whatever, of the church rising up from the ashes that it's soon going to be burned down into, <clears throat> there'd have to be probably three things that you'd have to do. And number one would be this. First off, no more disconnection. Just eliminate that policy totally. Let people freely talk to whoever they want to talk to. Look, if you leave the Catholic Church, they don't ban you from coming to church or ban you from talking to other Catholics. They say, okay, that's your choice. It's as simple as that. So that number one, no more disconnection. Number two, give a general amnesty. Have no grudges against anybody. Anybody who's ever said anything bad about you, as truthful as it is, accept it and put a general amnesty so there's no punishment for anybody who's ever done anything to the church. Okay, and then number three, only sell those products or services that actually can be delivered. Skip this shit of telling people they're going to attain superhuman or godlike qualities. It's never been done in, what is it, 70 years that the church has been around? Don't advertise that you can do this because you can't. You can improve a person's communication. You can advertise that. And a person will come in, do a communication course, and they communicate better. You can advertise lower level counseling where a person can get over some upsets they've had in their life just by good two-way communication with a person who's trained to give good two-way communication. Those are three major points. And uh, if that were to happen, which I will tell you this, for it to happen would be equivalent to a penguin walking in a room playing a jazz saxophone, you know? The odds, the odds aren't too good on that. The odds aren't too good on that. Yeah. And that's how I feel about what I just said. Although I think if that were to happen, yeah, I think they would get down to almost the flame going out, but possibly if they advertise these things and produce a certain result, people may say, hey, this is a good self-help group because most of the things are injurious about Scientology. I have a friend who said to me, Ron, and he was in the church for a long time. He said, yes, there are good things in Scientology, but the bad far outweighs the good. And that's the truth. Okay. It. Well said. Very well said. And what do you say? Just like a little quick side question. What do you say to people that like 
when I asked you about, are you going to go support the latest Mission Impossible movie? Like, because I mean, I'll be completely real with you. I before this, I was a giant Tom Cruise fan, and oh yeah, and and after finding out what I found out about Scientology, it makes me question: Should I be a fan of him? Like, is is there is there a way to separate? who he is as a person and who he is as an actor. So like, what do you say to that? Like if, like if people, well, I, I listen, I don't care if they go to see the movie, but I can tell you this, you're supporting a person who is supporting the church of Scientology. It's that doesn't ring true or a good thing for me. Okay. For me personally, uh, if somebody were to be backing up communist party, in some country, I'd say, okay, fine. You want to be a communist? That's okay. But me personally, I don't want to have anything to do with you. That's my own personal belief. And anybody who would support the Church of Scientology, whether it's John Travolta or Christy Alley or Ann Archer or any of these people or Tom Cruise, I'd say, man, you guys, you're not doing a service to your fellow man by doing this. If you were to come out and say, hey, listen, I was duped. I was fucked over for 30 or 40 years. I'll admit I was wrong. Don't join. That's the best thing they could do. Yeah. And, and, and he gives very little interviews on Scientology, Tom Cruise. And yeah, because after that scene with uh, Matt Lauer, Matt Lauer and jumping up and down on the couch with uh, who the fuck was not Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, Oprah. Oprah. Yeah. I, I think David took him aside and said, listen, no more interviews. And he will listen to David, by the way. But I'll tell you, on his own determination, he hasn't seen his daughter in seven years. Who, Tom Cruise? Yep. Whoa. Yeah, Siri. And that's because that's right. of and that's because of David. Well, there's a rule that uh, somebody leaves Scientology, you don't communicate to them anymore, and he's that's following right. that. K- uh, uh, Katie Holmes, you're talking about, right? With Katie Holmes, yeah. Wow. And, and and Katie Holmes, a very nice person. I know her. I knew her personally. As a matter of fact, I recorded a song with her in a studio in L.A. when I was in the Church of Scientology. She wanted to do a song for Tom. And uh, David said, look, take her in the studio and produce her, you know. So I took her in and she sang this song and she came in the, the control room. We listened to it. And she says, it sounds like shit, doesn't it? I said, listen, I can tell you what to do. And I told her what to do, how to handle it. Because uh, Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, a lot of these guys, as you get older and your voice is not as good as it used to be, sing short notes. I don't know know why I'm getting so far into this, but I've already into it, so I might as well say it. (laughs) But that does work. As a matter of fact, like if I sung the song, I've got you under my skin short notes but if i held a note out it would show flaws she did that and it went from absolute disaster into a very nice performance and uh, we made a little cd that she gave to tom then and on his birthday party she came out and she sang and she sang the same way and she sounded great these are these are nice people they just got mixed up with the wrong crowd yeah, but it it's just so like crazy that they're that 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 Tom Cruise is so involved in this that he will literally for the foreseeable future never see his daughter ever again, and that he's a he's arguably okay with that. Um, 
Yeah, well, I mean, the fact is that I can only report or see what they say in the rags, and there's no there's no statement uh, challenging this that he hadn't seen Surrey. Yeah, in about seven years, just imagine. I can't. How the hell could you live that way? I can't, and 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 my heart breaks. And I know, like you, like you might not be someone that wants sympathy or anything, but just when you were telling your story and and the fact that you can't, you know, talk to your son, you you can't, you, you can't talk to your daughter-in-law, you can't talk to um, my daughters, your daughters, your actual daughters. It, it's just, it's the most heartbreaking thing. So. That's why I. That's why I wanted to get you on, and 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 if we can just keep spreading this and and get this message out, because I'm sure there's so many people out there that don't know about, you know, yeah, a, well, as crazy as it is in the internet age that we are, there's so many people out there that have no idea of what Scientology really is. Yep, that's right. And I, again, if they want to follow this, and right now uh, I'm not going to the studio because my producer doesn't want to go out and expose himself to any you know coronavirus stuff and i don't blame them but uh you you want to catch up on all this stuff go to the real ron com, and you can hear interviews with other people who have been in scientology who have been abused true stories people come on the air they're not getting paid they're not getting anything out of it except gaining the the fact that they're doing something to help other people not get involved that's one thing i do i do story time if you just want some laughs some entertainment just for maybe nine or 10 minutes. You'll enjoy, enjoy that. Another one is life lessons where I give uh, good advice. This is street knowledge. I'm giving people like uh, don't loan money to friends or relatives. It never works out. You want to you want to do something for them. You want to give them the money. That's one thing, but don't loan it and then expect to get it back and everything's going to be hunky dory. I've never seen it work out in my whole life. So that's something I'm passionate on. Uh, and then the other thing is the workout apparatus, which these days uh, when you have this going around and it, exercise is something that can improve your immune system. I think it's a good idea to exercise, you know? Oh, very much so. And, and, and this is all on your YouTube channel, correct? Yeah. You get there and you can see all these things, you know? And by the way, this exercise apparatus is dirt cheap. But it's fabulous. It's just a great little thing that you can get for like 25 bucks. But it's, if you paid $60 for it and you got it, you'd say it was worth it. It's, it's, it's made that well. Anyway, listen, I don't want this to be a, a workout <laughs> program, but I, I wanted to mention that last because I, I think it's important for people to, you know, to stay in shape and uh, have a little bit of laughs and maybe get maybe some uh, knowledge on life about different things that I've learned and many of the things I talk about I have true life experiences and you can see how they, I relate to them and, and you, you could relate to that maybe in gain anyway that's a scene it's it's been a it's been an awesome time talking to you and uh, like like Ron said go check out his website his YouTube channel all the information is in the show notes below and uh, Ron uh, I I thank you for coming on here, putting uh, some time aside to to hop on here, and and uh, you know I would love to stay in, you know in contact with you, just you know even if just through text, just to yeah, because uh, you're you're an incredible person, seriously, and you're and you're doing a good thing with uh, all the uh, speaking that you're doing on this, so I really appreciate it. All right, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate that, and thanks for having me on, Eddie.
and uh, good luck to you and uh, hope you have a good day and uh, everything's well in your life. Likewise, Ron. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Talk to you later.